Welcome to Sunday School at the Refuge Church. We are going to be continuing our series on contending for the faith, and today we're going to be talking about building up our faith. And so before we do that, let's just pray and ask the Lord to help us get our hearts and minds ready for his powerful word today. God, thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are willing to work in our lives. And I ask that you would do that, Lord, wherever people are as they listen to this, that they would be moved by your word and that they would be challenged today to build up themselves in the most holy faith. You are wonderful and good, and we are ready for what you want to speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're talking about contending for the faith, and to contend for the faith, we must immerse ourselves in prayer, God's love, and his mercy. Our foundation scripture for this week is Jude, verse 20 through 21. There's only one chapter in Jude, so this is verse 20 through 21, and it says, But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. Now we're going to be looking at the life of Daniel, an Old Testament character. You probably know him from the story of Daniel in the lion's den, probably the most popular story about Daniel, a good Sunday school story. And Daniel, who was a Hebrew, he was just a young man when he was taken from his home in Judea and made a captive by the Babylonian army. Now, he was transported to a faraway land and transferred into slavery. He became a slave. Daniel likely felt like this was the end of the road for him, very far away from home and what was familiar to him. He was destined for a life of misery and heartache. And in spite of the circumstances that surrounded him, he made some remarkable decisions. Daniel decided he would not eat the meat the royal guard ate because it had been offered to idols. Daniel refused to cave to the Babylonian political system in which God had given him favor. God protected him and Daniel stayed true to his core beliefs. God gave Daniel a gift to interpret dreams and this confused others. And though this gift served him well in the Babylonian kingdom, it was also a huge weight of responsibility. Whether he was facing a den of lions or interceding for the people of Israel, Daniel learned that his strength came through prayer and fasting. Now, Daniel 10 describes a scene where Daniel had been fasting and praying for 21 days. And it appeared that there was no answer for him in sight and that his prayers might even be falling on deaf ears. But soon an angel appeared to him and described to him a scene about which humans rarely have insight. The angel described a spiritual battle that had taken place for the previous 21 days. The angel told Daniel not only had his prayers been heard on the first day, but also that the prince of Persia had withstood and resisted, trying to keep the angel from responding to Daniel's prayers. There was a battle going on. Ultimately, Michael, the angel, came and assisted, and the angels of God and Daniel prevailed. And their story, it provides interesting insight into what happens on the other end of our prayers. There is a battle. There is a spiritual tug of war. And it is so important that we build up our faith with spiritual disciplines that will eventually give us the victory. 
Now, Daniel, he built up his faith through consistent prayer. That's what he's very well known for. Prayer lays the foundation for great faith. We cannot separate great faith and fervent or passionate prayer. They are a part and parcel to each other. Great faith is based on prayer and fasting, which leads to spiritual authority. It can't be divided from prayer. It can't be divided from spiritual disciplines. Now, Jesus explains to his disciples that faith is built up by prayer and fasting. In one instance, the disciples prayed for a young man and nothing happened. But when Jesus prayed, the young man was delivered. Now, the disciples, they wanted to know why. They asked Jesus, why were you able to cast out the demon, but we were not? Now, Jesus explained that it took prayer and fasting. If faith is backed with prayer and fasting, it will be effective and every mountain or obstacle will be removed. Now, if nothing is happening to the mountain in your life, maybe we should ask ourselves, am I praying and fasting? Because we know through the words of Jesus that we should not expect that result of the mountain moving unless we are praying and fasting. Daniel prayed consistently before the trouble was present. Before he had trouble, he was already praying. And this type of proactive prayer, it kept him when he was in a crisis. Because Daniel was consistent with his prayer life, his detractors, those that accused him, were able to set a trap based on his consistency. Everybody knew that Daniel would pray three times a day with his windows open and towards Jerusalem. And his adversaries or enemies or then that wanted to see him uh, die, trick the king into passing a law that would make it illegal to pray to anyone other than the king. Now, these men knew it would be easy to catch Daniel breaking this law because they knew about his consistent prayer life. Daniel already had a foundation of consistent prayer life before he was thrown into the den of hungry lions. It wasn't that they made a law that you could only pray to the king and all of a sudden Daniel was, you know, praying three times a day. No, he was already doing that. A lot of us, we wait until a crisis to pray. And if we have a consistent prayer life before the crisis, then we will have great faith in the crisis. We cannot wait for crisis to start praying and to start fasting and to have spiritual disciplines. We have to have those things before the crisis. So what are some ways that we can have a consistent prayer life? Well, set a time. Make an appointment with God every day that you will not break for anything. Have a place that you go when you pray, a consistent place that stays the same as much as possible day by day. These two things will, will help you to make sure that you are praying consistently. Great faith is based on spiritual authority. Jesus observed the great faith of a Roman centurion whose servant was sick and dying. This man coming to Jesus for the healing of his servant insisted that Jesus didn't need to go to the location of the sick servant. The centurion told Jesus, say the word and my servant will be healed. The centurion explained his thinking with an example. I also am a man placed under authority, he said. There are soldiers unto me, and I say to one of them, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. 
He was explaining what authority looked like to him. Now, Matthew, in his writings, tells us the people sought to touch Jesus. It says in Matthew 14, 36, and besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched were made perfectly whole. Others tried to get Jesus just to touch the sick. In Mark 8:22, we find he cometh to Bethsaida and they bring a, brought a blind man unto him and besought him to touch him. They believed that if they could make the connection of touch, they would be healed. Now, this required faith, but it was only the beginning of building up their faith. If they could not make the connection of physical touch, then maybe they could just get close. After Jesus ascended and went into heaven, he gave his disciples authority to cast out evil spirits and to pray for the sick and they would recover. There was a covering on them. There was an anointing on them. And the people believed that if they could simply place themselves under the Apostle Peter's shadow or get under his authority or in his presence, they would be healed. Acts chapter 5 verses 15 through 16 says, Insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about into Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. They made that connection of just being close. Maybe that would mean healing. But this Roman centurion that we previously mentioned, he had such great faith that Jesus said he had never seen anything like it. And this centurion's great faith that, that amazed Jesus was based on the fact that he understood spiritual authority. And the centurion had received this revelation by being a man of authority and under authority. He understood that Jesus, having all authority, if he just gave the command, his servant would be healed. Jesus wouldn't have to touch the servant. He wouldn't have to go near the servant. He could simply give the command. And Jesus called this idea great faith. Now, prayer we're talking about prayer and, and building up ourselves in, in that faith. Prayer is the basis for spiritual warfare. Now, there is a battle going on, and we get a excellent picture of it in the story that we read about Daniel and the angel. And the encounter the angel had with the prince of Persia shows us there is a constant spiritual battle taking place in an unseen world. Spiritual warfare. We have to be aware of it. We have to uh, have an understanding of it so that we can be victorious. And scripture gives us a blueprint in 2 Corinthians verses, chapter 10, verses 3 through 6 says this. For though we live in the world, world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with, they are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience. Once your obedience is complete. 
actually in my uh, Bible reading this week, I, I've been reading Second Corinthians chapter 10 and wasn't really aware that it would meet up with our lesson for this week. But as I was reading it, I had circled these scriptures and, and just kind of put next to it a notation that said, you know, what's going on in 2020. It is a spiritual battle. It might look like a physical battle and it might look like there is there's a fight going on that we can all obviously see. But I am telling you now that there is a battle going on that goes beyond what we can see. It goes beyond what the news is showing us or what social media shows us. And we cannot fight it by what we post online. And we cannot fight it by the arguments that we have with those with opposing political views. But the only way that we can fight this battle that we are feeling and that we are pressured under right now is through prayer and through fasting. The first thing that effective spiritual warfare requires is that we have the right attitude. We must maintain an attitude of determination and an understanding of righteous indignation or righteous outrage at sin and secular ways. We have to be outraged by sin. No matter the reason for the sin, we have to be outraged for it. In 2 Corinthians 10, at the very beginning of the passage, Paul reminded the Corinthians that the fight is not a physical battle. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare, they are not carnal. This life requires that we are armed with weapons for warfare. This is a war. It requires sacrifice and commitment, and we cannot just wish it away. We must be offended. We must be outraged by what the enemy is doing to our families and our friends and our communities. We have to be offended and outraged by it. And we have to point the finger in the right direction. The enemy of our souls, the devil, the father of all lies, would like to see us look at this as a battle that is not spiritual or a battle that is carnal. But I'm telling you, it is not. The next step is action. We have to have the right attitude and we have to take action. Second Corinthians 10.4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. The pulling down, that is an action. And Paul went on to tell them, casting down imaginations and every high thing that would exalt itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience obedience of Christ. Casting down every high thing is a revolution against the powers of darkness and the tricks of the enemy. And when we pull down, when we cast down, when we bring into captivity, we are not being passive, but instead we are choosing to act. And let me tell you that the choice to act in the spiritual through prayer and fasting is the greatest choice that you can make. It is the greatest way that you can fight. And then there's aggression. We will be ready to punish every act of disobedience. And once your disobedience is complete, once your obedience is complete, we have to punish every act of disobedience. 
We have to take revenge on the disobedience of our own flesh. We have to get aggressive in the battle. We can't wait until we're attacked. Instead, we must choose to take the battle to the enemy. We must resolve in our hearts, in our minds, I am going to prayer. I am going to church. I am going to worship. I am going the extra mile. I am going to make it. I am going to get back up, dust myself off, and keep fighting. And then there's awareness. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 15 says, See then that you walk vigilantly or on alert, not as fools, but as wise. Building up our faith makes us more aware of the blind spots in our walk with God. You see, that's it. That's about self. It's not about pointing the fingers at someone else, but it is about being aware of our faults and, and the sin that, that the disobedience that we would have. We have to be aware of the blind spots in our own personal walk with God. You may be familiar with the story of Chris Kyle. He was a Navy SEAL sniper who had more confirmed kills than any other U.S. soldier in history. He served in four combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. In the 10 years of being deployed in some of the most dangerous parts of the world, he accumulated numerous medals for bravery and heroism in battle. Two silver stars, five bronze stars, two Navy and Marine Corps achievement medals, one Navy commendation medal, and one Marine commendation medal. The Grateful Nation Award was given to him from the Jewish Institute of National Security Affairs. You can read more about him in the autobiography of Chris Kyle, an American sniper. After the war was over and the combat had ended, Chris Kyle died tragically and suddenly, not on the battlefield. He wasn't geared up with camo and body armor, but he was at a shooting range in Texas with his friend. They were working with veterans to try and help them adjust to civilian life. Chris and his friend had taken a guy out to the range who had fought in the war and was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. While they were at the range trying to help the troubled vet, this vet got behind them, and when they were not looking, he opened fire, killing them both. As warriors, Navy SEALs, snipers, they had faced untold enemies and escaped, escaped time and time again. But sadly, Chris and his friend ended up dying a senseless death because they were not aware of the danger. It's one thing to see the danger and to be aware of it. It is something else to be comfortable, to let your guard down. Building up our faith keeps our guard up. Daniel, the Bible character that we've been focusing on today, His love for God kept his faith strong. Daniel was not righteous because of the respect he had for the king. Daniel lived a righteous life because of a relationship he had with God. Now, in Daniel's circumstance as a slave and somebody who had been carried away from his home thousands of miles, It would have been easy to slack off. It would have been easy not to follow the letter of the law. It would have been easy not to pray because who was watching and who was keeping account and what did it matter? But David had a relationship with God. Daniel. 
had a relationship with God. The understanding Daniel had went beyond dreams and visions. It was an understanding of the nature of God. He loved God and he was beloved by God. So what are some ways that we can keep the love of God a part of our decision-making process? How about if we include God's word in all our decision-making? Our love for God is demonstrated by obeying the word of God. Daniel obeyed the word of God because of his love for the author of that word. And if we have a relationship with God based on love, we will have a desire to exercise that love by obeying his word. The word of God builds up our faith by keeping us in a safe place. Psalm 119.11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Oh, you see that it becomes a boundary. I've hidden your word that I, and the reason is that when I hide it in my heart, it's harder for me to sin against you. We need his word. And then there's fasting. Fasting increases our sensitivity to the things of God. Daniel was committed to reduce the appetite of his flesh so that he could increase his appetite for the things of God. And this posture, this idea builds up our faith. Daniel committed himself to the sacrifice of fasting. Every sacrifice positions a person for the favor of God. A sacrifice of fasting has the added element of humbling the flesh. This spiritual discipline helps us to have a spiritual awareness as it did for Daniel. Fasting builds up our faith by bringing our flesh into submission. This process brings the power of God. God can only work in the space we provide for him by limiting our flesh. Let me say that again. God can only work in the space we provide for him by limiting our flesh because God will not share his glory with our flesh. So the more we minimize our appetite of our flesh, the more we maximize the presence and the power of God. So how does fasting do that? How does fasting build up our faith? Fasting is the key to understanding the desire of God to bless. The author of this lesson, David Myers, shares a story. He says, when I was a young single evangelist in the 1980s, I attended an evangelist seminar in Houston, Texas, hosted by the United Pentecostal Church. I had been praying and fasting for God to use me in the gifts of the Spirit. I remember praying in my hotel room during this season for consecration and fast, season of consecration and fasting. I asked God to use me and intended not to eat until he did use me. I felt the Lord speak to me and say, believe and you shall receive. I thought that I needed something much more dramatic. But in the very next revival, I saw supernatural results. Through that experience, I got a revelation that God wants to use us to bless others. And fasting is what opens our eyes to the will of God. We need to fast to build our faith. See, our faith is built up. Also, through the mercy and the grace of God. Great grace is what distinguished the early church. 
Acts chapter 4 verse 33 tells us, And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. In addition to great faith and great power, the early church had great grace. This dimension in God came from trials and their faith that forged a supernatural trust in God. Grace is commonly known as the unmerited favor of God or unearned favor of God. But great grace is the combination of God's favor to us and our trust in him. It is a part of building up our faith that holds us in the most of severe of adversities. Grace is what God gives us, and trust is what we give back to God. The greatest thing that we can give God is our own free will. We can trust him when everything is sinking around us. We can believe in him when others walk away. Great grace is born in adversity, but it continues to hold us when the sun is shining again. It is based on a relationship where deity and humanity come together to form a bond that goes beyond human logic. So what can we do to increase the grace of God in our lives? Grace grows by understanding that affliction comes with faithfulness. Now, this revelation, it builds up our faith. Psalm 119.75 says, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right and that thou in faithfulness has afflicted me. It seems unnatural that affliction would come with faithfulness. It seems more logical that if we're faithful to God and to his word, that there would be a reward of smooth sailing, no problems, no trouble. And what is even more difficult to understand is that sometimes we are afflicted in our faithfulness when others who are not faithful are not afflicted. Now, I think that's a good moment to remember the scripture in 2 Corinthians 10 that uh, tells us we should not compare ourselves among ourselves. Only God sees the whole picture. And if our eyes are on others, they surely cannot be on him. Now, Daniel, he was afflicted in his faithfulness and was sent to a den of lions when his only crime was faithfulness. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why does affliction come in the midst of faithfulness? It's not for the purpose of causing pain. It's not for the purpose of positioning us in God's divine plan. What appears to be punishment may actually be preparation. God is preparing us for something powerful and beautiful. You know, we don't read much in the story of Daniel about what it took and the trials that it took for him as a young man to be taken from his family, away from his home, probably walking the distance from his homeland to Babylon. That may have actually been the most trying part of Daniel's life. And that may have been where he was prepared, where his faith was prepared to face the other battles that we know about, the other things that we have record of. He had great faith because he'd had great trials. God was preparing Daniel for something powerful and something beautiful. And I am certain that as we go through struggles, as we go through trials, 
that God is preparing us. He's not punishing us, but he is preparing us. He is positioning us to be a part of his divine plan. He sees the end from the beginning. He sees what's going on in a realm that we cannot see. I want to finish with this. A pilot, an air pilot, trains to be a private pilot by first getting what is called a VFR, Visual Flight Rules Rating. The pilot must have at least a thousand foot ceiling of clear skies and three miles visibility. In other words, the pilot is efficient to fly solo or with a passenger as long as the pilot has good visibility with his natural eyes. Now, if the pilot gets in a storm or in fog, it can cause disorientation because the pilot has learned to fly using his senses. The next level of training that a pilot would go through would be the IFR or Instrument Flight Rules Rating. This level of training conditions the pilot to learn to follow the instruments. The pilot trains under a hood to learn to trust the instruments regardless of what the pilot's senses are saying. The senses can fool a pilot, but the instruments seldom lie. Instrument training can save lives if a pilot gets into an unexpected storm. Now, there's a famous person that you've probably heard their story, and maybe you don't know the reason for their death, but I want to read to you about the death of John F. Kennedy Jr. It was the evening of July 16, 1999, and John F. Kennedy Jr., the son of the U.S. President John F. Kennedy, died when the light aircraft he was flying crashed into the Atlantic Ocean off of Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. Kennedy's wife, Carolyn Bassett, and his sister-in-law, Lauren Bassett, were also on board, and they died. The single-engine Piper Saratoga airplane had departed from New Jersey's Essex County's airport, and its intended route was along the coastline of Connecticut and across Rhode Island Sound to Martha's Vineyard Airport. The official investigation by the National Transportation Safety Board concluded that Kennedy fell victim to spatial disorientation. While he was descending over water at night, and he lost control of his plane. Kennedy did not hold an instrument rating. He was only cleared and certified to fly under that first rating of visual flight rules. At the time of the crash, the weather and light conditions were such that all basic landmarks were obscured, making visual flight challenging. And because he could not see and he did not know how to use the instruments correctly, he flew into the Atlantic Ocean, thinking that he was flying through the sky. If he'd have known how to read the instruments, he could have put his trust in them instead of in his own senses. That's what great grace does. Great grace is learning to live this life by trusting the instruments of God's word, regardless of what our senses are telling us. 
flying a plane by instruments, it's equal to the great grace God bestows on us to build up our faith. If we learn to follow the direction of God's word by building up our faith, by trusting in him, we can get through the storms of life and have a safe landing. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word today. It is so timely and so important that we receive and understand the principles through this lesson. We have got to learn to build up ourselves, Lord God, in the most holy faith. We've got to learn to depend on you. We have got to learn to crucify our flesh, to bring it into the obedience of your word, O God. Lord, we've got to quit making judgments based on what we see with our eyes, Lord God. And we've got to learn to lean on the Holy Spirit in us, working through us, Lord. We want to be fighting the right battles. We want to be fighting through prayer and fasting, Lord. Help us. Help us to discern better, Lord Jesus. Lord, I thank you for your word today, and I thank you for how impacting it is. I pray that we would all be changed by it in Jesus' name. Amen.